What is the Overtone series and why should you know it? We'll talk about that next. And hello, welcome to the Musician Toolkit. This is episode 7. My name is David Lane and I'm glad to be with you today. We're going to be talking about a fun topic that um, can be a little bit difficult, <laughs> but I think it's very important, uh, called the Overtone Series. And uh, before I talk about that, I just want to say briefly that you should check out Fonz if you are not a client already, and if you have a teaching studio, or if you have any kind of business that involves scheduling and billing uh, with one-on-one -on -one or small groups. So that could be just about anything. Um, I've been using them for months, and it just it gives me more time to focus on things other, that, that don't involve admin. And you can find that link in the show notes. And so I encourage you to go give that a try. There's a free trial period. And you can see if it works for you. In the previous episode of the Musician Toolkit, I was talking to Federico Pavetta about jazz piano. And uh, in the middle of that, we were talking about voicing chords and why, you know, it doesn't sound good to choose chords in a closed position. That is to say, root, third, fifth, all within an octave stacked in that order. Um, if you're playing it really low on the instrument, low on the keyboard... Um, and you know, the phrase came up, you know, the overtone series. And I actually perked up when he said that. And, um, it's something that I've thought about quite a bit over the years. Um, you know, I haven't really talked much about my background as a performer, but you know, I'm a pianist, but I used to play French horn and, uh, fr French horn players are always thinking about the overtone series. I'll talk more about it a little bit later, but the Overtone series is actually the main reason why French horn players will all tell you, and anybody who's ever tried French horn will tell you, that it is the most difficult to play of all the brass instruments. It has nothing to do with anything else, not to do with the mouthpiece size, not to do with any other aspect other than the Overtone series, and I'll explain more when we get there. So this is a subject that it seems like it always comes up in lessons. I always find a way to get to it with every student. And when it happens, I get excited, but also slightly anxious. And of course, the reason I get excited is I just find this whole subject fascinating. And I get anxious because I'm not positive that I'm, first of all, I'm explaining it 100% correctly. And I need to make that disclaimer. Um, and, you know, I'm not a physicist. I've never properly studied acoustics other than what I've read from books and a few lectures that I've listened to. So, you know, th this is something that if this podcast stays around long enough, we may come back and revisit this. And I may get someone who really knows from the physics standpoint what's going on that can talk about this. Um, so I do want to go ahead and say this is an episode that uh, I'm going to do my best to make it work for podcast. You might get a little bit more out of it, though, possibly, if you were to check out YouTube. And I'm going to put the link for this episode in the show notes so that you can go check it out if you'd like to. Because I am going to include some, some visual diagrams. Uh, so if you're just listening podcasts, that's fine. I'll, I will describe everything as well as I can. So 
anyway, uh, the the other reason I get anxious uh, when when it comes up in lessons is that this is not a topic that I can explain quickly to get back to the main agenda, and uh, and I just know okay, well this this is the overtone series lesson. So uh, if I do this well, I may just put this as a link on my website or you know where I keep my you know my teaching things organized and. I just tell them, here you go. <laughs> go ahead and check that out. Let's talk about it later. Just see if you have any questions. Okay. What am I talking about? I'm talking about something that exists in the world of acoustic music. And it's called many names, but the most it's most commonly known as the overtone series. And it's also known as the harmonic series. So if what I talk about next causes you to zone out with some boredom, <laughs> just just know that by the end, we'll go over how this can be accessed in instruments and how understanding it can make you a much better improviser, composer, or arranger. And again, all of those are among the 20 tools of musicianship. So as best as I can explain it, let's talk about what it is. All right, before we go on, I need to confirm that this is something that happens on acoustic instruments. That is, instruments that are produced with strings, your breath, or some other physical element, such as a hammer or stick, um, as opposed to purely electric instruments, like a digital keyboard. An electric guitar is an example of something that has the same physical mechanisms as its acoustic counterpart. Uh, the only difference is that it requires amplification but because the physical method of making the sound is the same as an acoustic guitar it works on both electric and guitar and similar what we're talking about the overtone series so it's easiest for me to explain all of this by using a piano keyboard but i'll i'll explain how this works on other instruments as well by the end so on a piano again i'm talking about an acoustic piano not a keyboard I'm going to play an A2 for reference. This is the A on your piano that is located a tenth or an octave plus a third below middle C. It's called A2 because it is, well, it's actually the third A on the piano. Our numbering system works like this. This is something we should probably go over at some point. Uh, if you go to a full-size keyboard, you are looking at A, A sharp or B flat, and B zero, and then you get to the first C, the C begins an octave number, C1, and it goes through B1. I'm choosing A, I could, this could work on any key. It works better with keys down low, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose A2 because I can actually do the math on this. <laughs> and yeah, uh, sorry, there's a warning, there is some math involved. I'll try to make it as painless for you as possible. Um, so, once again, I'm going to play the A2. Now, when you hear that, how many different sound waves are vibrating? If your answer is one, then you answered a different question. The question you answered would be, how many sounds do you actually hear? And one is most likely correct, unless you have an exceptionally resonant instrument in an acoustically rich room. But the question that I asked was, how many different sound waves are vibrating? And the answer to that is 
a lot. In fact, it might be an infinite amount. Um, the, the, the sound waves get smaller and smaller, and not only that, but they get, um, they get fainter and fainter. And it's for this reason why the overtones don't, you don't hear them so well in a very high frequency. Okay, so what you're actually hearing when you play that, that A2 that, I, that I've played a couple of times, you're hearing what's called the fundamental part of the pitch. So that is the fundamental. If you were to play a sine wave, that is something that is synthetic and completely stripped of the quality of resonance, you would hear this note played like this. It's a razor-thin sound. The reason it sounds thin is because, in this case, the fundamental note is actually the only sound wave that there is. So there are no overtones with this sound. This is just the fundamental, it's just a single sound wave by its, as it is. So resonance is what we call the richness to a sound. And it comes from the presence of overtones along with the fundamental. So let's talk about what are overtones. When an acoustic instrument makes a sound or it sounds a note, you hear the fundamental note. But there are many other sound waves for other notes that are vibrating. We don't hear them unless we isolate their frequency, something I'll get to in a moment. But they add the richness to the sound. So here's where I'm going to give you the warning again. Here comes the math. Overtones exist in a relationship of frequency times partial. So that would be F times P. A partial is simply what we call each note in the overtone set and including the fundamental. So the fundamental of A2 is 110 hertz. It's just a way of measuring the sound frequency. And um, so we call that F times 1. So it's F, F1. And uh, so the first sound wave is 110 times 1, which is... 110. So we could call it A2. We could also call it A110 if we're talking about the frequency. Okay, <laughs> hang in there. The first overtone, or the second partial of the series, is an octave higher than that A2. And so that is frequency times 2, or 110 times 2, which gets us an octave higher. It gets us to A3, or a220 hertz, A220. Frequencies get exponentially higher in number as you go up because each octave is double the previous number. So if you know anything about orchestra, and here's why I'm using the A, uh, you know that the next A is going to be A4, which is 440 hertz, um, or A440. Well, that's partial number four. Partial number three, or F3, is the E4, the E above middle C, and that is E330. And then you get to A440. If we keep that going, the next one is the C sharp above, C sharp 5, 550, E660, G770, and A880. After you get to A880, which is A5, it actually keeps going in a series of seconds. So usually B, C sharp, 
D sharp, E, F sharp, G, A. There's some discrepancy about whether or not those are the pure pitches. Um, there are some composers, most notably a composer named Scriabin, that have taken the, the A5 to, to A6, those partials, and called that the acoustic scale. It can keep going and going, but we'll stop there because, you know, then the sound waves kind of get between our half-step system, and so it doesn't really work beyond that. Plus, they get too faint to hear, so we'll stop there. Okay, if you're still here, <laughs> I think the tedious part is done, so now let's get to the cool part. So I'm going to show you some various video clips. Uh, on the first one, I'm at my slightly out-of-tune piano. Okay, I'm going to demonstrate what it sounds like, the overtone series, on, on an acoustic piano. It's just an upright, but let's take a look at what's happening. So the fundamental note I'm going to be using here is what we call A2. So it's uh, an octave and a third, low, middle C. Sounds like this. Well, while you're hearing that note, you are hearing partial two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so forth, and then on, onward and onward. So we're going to isolate some of these, some of these harmonic overtones by me silently pressing one at a time. So like, this is the fundamental note. I'm going to start an octave above. I'm going to silently press that note, silently as I can, and I'm going to quickly hit the, first, the fundamental note, the A2. If you check, if you were to replay that, you'd hear you hear a lot of these notes being activated by the combination of the fundamental and silently pressing that overtone. It's a very chime sound. Okay, so the next note I'm going to press is E4. This would be partial number three. And I'm going to hit the A2 while I hold that down. There's a bit of a chime on that E, and you can hear a faint, faint bit of the next note, which is partial number four. This is the A4. And we'll hit that A2. You hear a chime on that note, but you also heard a little bit of the C sharp and E. And all those other overtones are there as well. It's just we can't hear them. They're very faint, very silent. The audible note is the one that we isolated, or the fundamental note as we play it. This works on all of the keys. Again, I just used A for the math. So one more thing, just for fun, I'm gonna play the A2 fundamental, but I'm gonna hold down, let's do multiple partials. So I'm gonna hold down the, set, the third, fourth, and fifth partial, which is E, A, and C sharp, sorry, E4, A4, C sharp five. I'm gonna hold those down quietly while I play the A2. All three of those notes are chiming, and I also heard a little bit of the next partial, which is the E5 going as well. This is, this is an effective acoustic instrument. You get something similar on guitar, you get something similar on harp. Any instrument that's plucked or hammered will give you that same effect. In this next video clip, I've asked my wife, to play her viola on an open A string. Then she's going to lightly touch the spot of the string where she would press down 
to get the octave higher, but she's just going to lightly touch the string. And notice that sounds like the actual pitch that she would get if she pressed fully, but it's not a full rounded version. It is a it is sort of a half version of itself. It's it doesn't have the richness. It's just kind of like a ghostly sound. Then I'm going to have her actually move a little closer to the bridge and play what would be a perfect fifth above the string. So this is on her A string. This is where she would play the E above. She's going to lightly tap it. And what you actually hear is the E that would be a, an, an E6. It would be a, an octave higher than the full pitch that she would actually play. Then she's going to move a little closer to the bridge. Now she's only going to play a perfect fourth above the open string, or the spot where she would play that, where she would play the D above the open string. But she's going to lightly tap it. What happens is she now gets the harmonic that is two octaves above the open string. If you didn't know this about strings, you probably heard this on like suspenseful movies or uh, heard those really high strings and imagine that the violin is like almost where the bow is, you know, just bringing, bringing the hand so close and really going high. But it's actually a very easy effect, very cool effect to know if you're composing or arranging. You just need to know where those partials are. So that's a little teaser why this is helpful to know if you're a composer or an arranger. This chiming sound, or this kind of harmonic sound that you get, it can be done on the same way on a guitar, by lightly touching the 12th fret, or the 7th, or the 5th, for example, and you'll get the similar types of effects. It can also be done on the harp by moving away from the resonant part of the string and plucking toward the top of the instrument. I want to talk briefly about brass instruments. So... The overtone series is what makes playing on a brass instrument even possible. You only have three valves, and there's a limited number of combinations as you can put them down, and yet you have to move across, for most good brass instruments, two and a half, three octaves, sometimes more. A very good horn player can play usually about a four octave range. Um, they have to be able to, to do that through combination of lip pressure to achieve the next overtone of the series. This next video is of Harlan Feinstein, who is actually a past guest of my other podcast, Life in the Pit. He plays multiple brass instruments, and I asked him um, that my preference would be for him to demonstrate this on French horn. So he's going to show you the various notes that can be played without pressing any valves. <laughs> So I want to make a note about French horns compared to the other brass instruments. Another thing that we could get into that would that confuses most musicians that takes a long time to explain. So please forgive me if I don't take time to do that for this episode. I may kind of punt that down the road. But it's why why are brass all transposing instruments? You know, why is the trumpet typically in a, a B flat instrument? That is to say, why does it 
get a written middle C that sounds like a B flat? Why does the French horn get a written middle C that sounds like an F? And for now, I'm just going to tell you because I told you so, <laughs> which is not the truth. It's um, There's a reason behind it. I'll get into that later down the road. Um, the thing that you can know is that middle C pretty much feels the same on all these instruments, what is written as a middle C. Um, your bass instruments, bass clef instruments such as trombone, tuba, euphonium, are typically written as is, and so their main note is a B flat. If you take this concert B flat that gets written as a middle C for trumpet, or if you take what would actually be an F, you know, that gets written as a middle C for French horn, Let's just take, where does their middle C, or, you know, for trumpet we'll say B flat, where does that occur in the overtone? Well, it's the second partial. It's the first overtone that they could get from the lowest note they can possibly play in first position or with no valves. But if you transpose that to F, the French horn is not starting on partial number two, it's starting on partial number four. And thing, you know, that we haven't really pointed out that's obvious is that the partial start off spread out way apart. Your lip can very easily find an octave and then a fifth and a fourth. And when a trumpet or trombone does that, when they get into thirds, they're in the highest octave that they're usually ever asked to play. Unless they're like a first trumpet in a, in a jazz band, you know, that's doing the screechy notes. French horn, just to play in the normal octave that they're asked to, they're already in the partials that are close together by thirds. French horn can go from their middle C to an E above, to a G above, a B flat above, and C. In fact, um, when I was in seventh grade band, our chair audition was just that. Um, the French, the horn player who could on one breath slur all five of those notes, C, E, G, B flat, C, <laughs> would get first chair. Uh, I got last year out of seven horns the first time I tried it. And, uh, you know, because I was uh, an angry, uh, arrogant 12-year-old, I practiced like crazy and I got second chair <laughs> uh, the next time that there was an audition. And, you know, first chair was a ninth grader, so I felt pretty good about that. So when a French horn player tells you that their instrument is the hardest of the brass instruments, that is why. They have such little margin for error to find the right note when they're trying to increase their lip pressure. If they increase their lip pressure just a little bit too much, they, they go from partial four, not to five, but to six or seven fairly easily. So this is, this is why uh, it's a much more difficult instrument to learn, if not to actually play. Have you ever wondered why every bugle call ever made uses these four notes f4 b flat 4 d5 and f5 every last bugle call uses all of these here's some of the examples and that's it it's just those four notes why is that it's because it is in a not easy, but very doable part of the range for a bugle, which is essentially a trumpet that has no valves.
And what it is, is it is the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth partials of the overtone series, which a trumpet is usually centered around B flat is its main note. Now, as I mentioned, this does not work on true electric instruments like a keyboard that you plug in. Um, a keyboard, even one with a good piano sound, is really just recordings sampled into the instrument. So if it sounds resonant, it's because there was a resonant recording of a piano made, but you're not producing real resonance. And I'm going to sh show you why, why that's true and how you can know it. So let's check this out. This is another video clip that I've made for you. This is the second half of Gavotte number two, which is known as the Musette, from Box English Suite number three. Let's check out the sheet music first. I want you to notice the tie in the bass, the G3 that never ends. I'm going to play it as written on the keyboard. Okay, so now I'm going to play the second half of the G major gavotte, also known as the musette from box English suite number three. And this note is meant to sustain for basically 12 full measures of a very slow cut time. And if I just play it, this is not gonna be as good on a recording as when you hear it live. But anyways, you hear this is getting more and more faint. With about four or five measures left, this note will completely decay. And if I was on an acoustic piano, the same thing would happen. But uh, I'm not going to do what a lot of other books do, which is to re-strike this note. I'm going to hold it down the whole time. And I'll keep holding it when I'm done with this passage. And um, we'll just see what's there. So this is the passage. It's... things because there's nothing to hear the sounds all gone that G decayed just like I said it would and all the other notes that I played against it it didn't matter so at the end I'm holding on to the G3 but the sound is all gone the fundamental sound of the G3 dies halfway through that passage holding it down does no good on electric on an electric instrument and for that reason some additions have separated the tie so that you restrike the note such as this example here. But don't you suspect that Bach knew what he was doing? So now I'm on an acoustic upright. The same note, if I was to play it, it would completely decay. Long before this passage is done, I'm going to play the same passage, the second half of the G major gavotte uh, from Bach's English Suite number three. And again, unlike some additions, I'm not going to restrike this so that we keep hearing that note. I'm going to hold this down. And when I'm done with the passage, I'm going to keep holding on to that note. And let's see what happens now.
You hear it? It's those notes chiming. The fundamental, once again, it disappears long before the passage is done. But by sustaining that key and letting the key strings vibrate, they are reacting to the notes that happen to be in the in the overtone series above. Partials 2 and 3, the G4, and the D5. And by the end of the piece, those are the notes you hear, not the G3 that you started with. It's a really cool effect that just it doesn't work on an electric instrument. You must have an acoustic piano to play this piece and get what Bach had in mind when he wrote it. All right, let's talk about how knowing the overtone series improves your composing and your improvisation. Past couple of episodes, we've talked about playing with the lead sheet. So when it comes to either playing from a lead sheet and choosing how to interpret the chord symbols, or if you're making up your own music through composing or improvisation, it helps to look at the model shown by the overtone series. So let's look at it again. Look at the first, just the first five partials, something that you could play with two hands. The distance between partials one and two is an octave. Then you go up to a fifth, to partial three, then a fourth, then a third. The partials continue in thirds before they progress by seconds. If you have a piano or keyboard handy, and I'm also going to demonstrate this here for you, um, you can do this yourself. Play partials one and two with the left hand at the same time as you play partials three, four, and five with the right hand. Let's listen to that. Isn't that a rich chord? Part of why it's so rich is because it's including partials of the overtone series without a break. So all those notes fully complement one another. So what does that tell us about creating chord voicings? Although every pitch has its own overtone series, the fundamentals that start in treble clef are increasingly too faint in volume to do much with. So we're, we generally start from a low register. If you go to a piano and play around with intervals at, at the bottom octave or two, so literally like <laughs> the very bottom, nothing sounds good between two notes. Not a fifth, definitely not thirds. One exception is the octave. The octave sounds great in any register. Once you're past C2, the second C on the piano, you can try a fifth, then a fourth. Once you get past C3, you can now go to thirds. Rich harmonic texture will generally include a mixture of an octave and or fifths at the bottom of the chord and fourths, fourths or third as you get higher. Densely harmonic structures like ninth chords and, and upward will, will usually be added to seconds, but always in the upper register. Now you don't have to start every chord with an octave or even a fifth or fourth. You can start on any partial you want, and then you can go out of order with, with some of the notes. You don't have to start on partial number one or two. There's nothing wrong with the traditional chord of C, E, G from bottom to top in thirds. However, because of the overtone series and resonance, it will sound much better if you do that on C3, which again is an octave below middle C or above. And it's notable that it sounds good but it's just not nearly as resonant as the open voicing that you get when you start at the bottom. Now, a notable exception to all of this is Ludwig von Beethoven. 
Well, let's just look at the left-hand staff from this excerpt and uh, just how low these closed-voiced chords are. It's worth pointing out that Beethoven does this so often in his music that it's actually a distinct characteristic to his music. So that means, one, rebelling against the Overtone series model when you're creating chords, it doesn't necessarily make you revolutionary, but it might make you sound like you're imitating Beethoven. And two, Beethoven's music is great, and he doesn't always do this. In fact, his grand chords and his symphonies are almost always overtone friendly. And number three, when he does do this closed voicing low, it sounds fine, and he uses it well, but it's, it's not resonant. And that's just the thing to keep in mind. If you want a resonant chord, something that sounds a certain way, you do want to follow the overtone series. So here's some checkpoints when you're creating chords. Just general guidelines based on what we know about the overtone series. Spread out the notes at the bottom. You can be bold with seconds in the upper half of your chords. And jazz musicians, this is a nice little trick to know. Only put the root third, fifth, and seventh in the bottom half of a chord. So if you're stacking like a, you know, three notes in the left hand, three or four notes in the right, a real thick chord, keep the root third, fifth, and seventh on the bottom. The ninth, eleventh, and thirteenth and other color notes should be reserved for the top. And when you do an arpeggio run off of those thick chords in the upper register, Focus on those color notes as being the ones going up and down on those runs. Leave the the main notes of the chord, the primary notes, which jazz notes also call the fundamental notes, at the bottom, if you don't want this to sound too vanilla. If you arpeggiate those notes, it just doesn't sound so good. And this is probably another topic for another time. Okay, I know this is a confusing topic for many, and I don't know that I've made it any clearer. I just know that I've tried. <laughs> Send me a message or comment on any on any post on social media if something specific needs more clarity. Um, and if you'd like to, again, if you'd like to check this out as a full presentation, as a video, if you're not already on YouTube, I do recommend that you go check that out to just see some of the examples. And that's going to be it for episode number seven. I have a really fun interview that i'm looking forward to sharing with you next week it's kind of special to me personally and um really really looking forward to that next week so i hope you'll come back and check out episode eight when i premiere it next week on february 13th thank you please share this episode if you got any value out of it um, and please tell your friends about this podcast and if you haven't already, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a five-star rating and review, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, but also on Spotify. Thank you so much for listening.